today as the church to fellowship, to pray, to uh, be in your word, to sing worship to you. And Lord, as we continue to worship in the preaching of your word, I, I ask, Lord, please forgive my sins. Please uh, speak through me in your grace, clearly, powerfully, um, open all of our hearts to receive it. We ask your spirit to work on us. Draw those not in the faith, we, we ask to Christ and those who are, Lord, make us more like our Savior. And we, we pray it in his name. Amen. Family. Home. What comes to your mind when, when you hear those terms? What, what arises in your heart? Do you smile? Do you feel warm, loved, loving? Do you feel sad, sense of longing? I could probably keep going. There's, there's probably such a wide gamut of thoughts and emotions that arise to those terms. And, and my guess is whatever those reactions are, and there may be multiple all interwoven, they're strong. Because God made us to where family is interwoven in who we are as human beings. And we long for a loving family, a loving home. And what, what, does this, what is this family love like? Maybe it's the sparkle in the eye that says, I love you, I'm, I'm glad you are my child. Maybe it's the gentle sound of kindness that just asks, how was your day? Maybe it's the soft drop of a tear that echoes the just spoken words, I forgive you. Maybe it's the flavor of a favorite meal that reminds I love you, I care, I want to bless you. Maybe it's the comforting scent of home that softly hums, you belong, you're loved, you're secure. It's countless, countless ways, possibilities that unconditional love can express itself from husband to wife and wife to husband and father to children and mother to children and child to parent and sibling to sibling. And, and God, God does call us to this love, to imitate him in this love. Earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. The next chapter, Ephesians 2, begins, but God being, or not begins, but in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. And gave himself up for us, an, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Our passage today, with its immediate context here in Ephesians and with all of, all of this context of Scripture, it encourages us in this desire for loving family. And it gives us hope. 
that by God's grace, we can enjoy family to his glory. Even amidst all of the challenges that arise against it, in, in, within ourselves, within our families, and from the society around us that increasingly opposes God's design for family. In, in 1960, 84% of working class Americans were married. By 2012, only 48%. The number of children born to unwed mothers has gone from 4% in 1940 to 40% in 2012. Three years after that, 2015, the Obergefell decision was made. Totally, in our society's view, redefining marriage, completely contradictory to Scripture. Marriage is being devalued, it's being redefined. Sexual intimacy has been disconnected by our society from marriage. The LBGTQ plus array agenda is being forced upon us. And not just to allow it, but you have to agree that it's good. Well, if we believe the Bible, we cannot, we cannot agree to that. We could go on and on of society's opposition to God's design for the family, but the opposition does not change God's design. His design stands, and it's beautiful, and it's good, and it's right, and it's lovely, and it's a blessing, and it's a gift to us from our great God. And His grace is there for believers to follow Him in it even through all of the obstacles, even the ones of our own making. His grace is there for us to pursue him in this great, grand design that he's given. My goal today is to encourage. There'll probably be conviction because the word always brings conviction. I felt conviction preparing. But when it's conviction from the Lord, it comes with encouragement. He encourages us where he convicts us. Because we find grace, we find forgiveness, we find change that he works in his power. And so what I, what I want us to do, four, four points, and in descending order of length, just to let you know that up front. <laughs> Honor, observe by grace, magnify, and enjoy God's design for the family to his glory. Honor, observe by grace, magnify and enjoy God's design for the family to his glory. Let's read this passage again here in Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Honor God's design for the family. Here in Ephesians 6, we have parents, we have children. It follows Ephesians 5 that describe the marriage of a husband and a wife. And so let's briefly look at the biblical context of this design of God for what sometimes we call the nuclear family. 
God designed the family with the creation of mankind. In Genesis 1 and 2, when God created mankind, he created a marriage. I think that's incredibly significant. When he made humankind, he made a marriage. So family has been part of who we are as human beings from the start. He made the man, then he made the woman, and then they became one flesh as man and wife. And in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 24, in the midst of describing that, he makes clear that a man marrying a wife will be the ongoing expectation in the generations to follow Adam and Eve. Their children will marry, their children will marry. It wasn't just, well, Adam and Eve, yeah, they, they were a marriage, but that's not, the, that's not the norm. No, that's God's norm. That was the expectation expressed there and as he's revealing the creation of the first marriage. It doesn't mean there aren't exceptions. God, God speaks in his word of he gifts some for singleness, for instance. There, there can be exceptions, but the norm, the expectation, the design of the family is involves marriage and he also commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth children and notice the order marriage and they come together as one including physical intimacy and then they have children in chapter four and then and then and on and on and on down to us today this design is from the very start God designed the family with the creation of mankind. Next, to include a man and woman faithfully married for life. Notice in the creation of Adam and Eve, in the first marriage, that it was not a polygamous marriage. He didn't make multiple wives for Adam. He didn't make multiple men with one wife. He made a man and a wife. Notice also that it's not a serial marriage. Adam didn't have Eve, and then later another wife, and then later another wife, and then later another wife. In fact, later in Revelation, Malachi 2.16, the Lord says he hates divorce. Due to sin, there's very limited, but some limited allowance for divorce because sin messes things up so badly. But God hates it. A believer who's gone through it hates it. It's not a good thing. And it's not part of the design that God made for the family. And notice that it's not a same-sex marriage. God made man. He made woman. A man and woman in marriage. And as we continue to read in Scripture, it's a faithful marriage. God would later command, you shall not commit adultery. And flee from sexual immorality. And notice also that marriage comes first. It's the priority relationship in the family. That sounds strange in our day, to our society. That, that weirdly both lowers children and exalts children at the same time. But in God's design... The marriage is first. The marriage is the priority relationship and even making it so blesses the children more. Blesses them more in, the, in their rearing and, and pointing them to the Lord and picturing Christ and the church and so forth. 
So God designed the family with the creation of mankind to include a man and a woman faithfully married for life with complementary roles. This aspect of God's design could fill many sermons. Let me try to be very brief and summary in this. Genesis 1 through 3 makes clear that husband and wife, the man and the woman, were created equal. Equally in the image of God, in the likeness of God. And then both before the fall into sin, and then in God's confronting them and and bringing some correction to their sin in chapter 3, he makes clear in both places, so pre-fall and beginning the, the restoration redemption process after the fall, he makes clear that the man and the woman have unique and complementary roles. The husband, to borrow from Recovering Biblical Man and Womanhood, edited by John Piper and Wayne Grudem, the husband is to be responsible to lead, provide for, and protect. The wife is to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from her husband. Ephesians 5, right before our passage, it states clearly that the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. It doesn't command the husband to make himself the head. It just states the reality that in God's design, the husband is the head of the wife. He's either a good one or a bad one. And what what husbands, what we're called to there in Ephesians 5, is to love our wives as Christ loved the church. That's how to be a good one. We can't be as Christ because we're sinners, but in Christ, he can help us to more and more do so. To more and more love our wives as he loves us, his church. And to sacrificially take responsibility to lead, provide, and protect. You know, the world around us hates this biblical truth. And hate's not too strong a word for how the world views this view of complementary roles. They're wrong in, the, in how they react to it. They think it's misogynistic. They think it's patriarchal. They think it's oppressive. It's none of those things. In fact, where the word of God has held sway historically and around the world is where women have been lifted out of oppressive situations, abusive situations. The the word of God that tells us these truths is what has that effect. Because most societies historically have treated women horribly. Christ is the one who brings, the Lord is the one who brings proper understanding that we're equally created in the image of God, but also with unique complementing roles in marriage as husband and wife. And there can be so many different applications of how to, to lay all that out and those roles and how it applies to work and for the wife work outside the home and, and prioritizing the home, as the Bible says. And those are other sermons. Those are other lessons. But if you, if you trust God and you hold to his design and prayerfully guided by the Spirit, you can navigate that. He'll guide in that if you're not opposed to his, to his plan. Let's keep going. God designed the family with the creation of mankind to include a man and a woman faithfully married for life with complementary roles, training up their biological and or adopted children. In God's design, most married couples will have children. Not every. There can be exceptions, but 
That is biblically the expectation. That's the norm, and it's good. It does not, our society's cry that we're overpopulated and we're harming the earth by having children and we should have less and less children, those, that kind of reasoning is not true to the revelation of God in Scripture. It just is not. Don't get swept into that. Children are wonderful. Children are a blessing of the Lord. They're, they're, they're in God's design. And, and they, in God's design, a married couple, married and then have children or adopt children. Now, can there, are there some exceptions? Yes, and we'll talk in a little bit about exceptions, but that's the design. That's how God designed it. That's where, it's, that's where it works as it should. And in this design, children are this incredible gift from God. In Psalm 127, Starting at verse 3, it says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. There's not a, there's not a certain number. Not a, there's not a legalistic, you have to have this many or that many or as many, just as many as you can have. There's liberty in that. But the biblical thinking is children are good. Children are a blessing. And if you have many, that's good. It's a good thing. In fact, in fact where things have led is many, many nations, most nations around the world are now have experiencing a birth rate so low that we can't, over time, we're not going to be able to maintain our society and our culture. Including, surprise, America was was further, you know, had a higher birth rate for years. COVID happened. I remember when COVID started, having some conversations, I wonder if we'll have a, a, a baby boom. We haven't. We haven't. Whether it's the media scared everyone so badly or what, our birth rate significantly dropped through COVID. That's not good. That's not speaking to any individual situation. God can lead families in different ways, but... On the whole, his plan is clear. We should be fruitful and multiply. And if we're not, something's off. We're off if that's societally our reaction. Children, furthermore, are, are charges from the Lord to be stewarded and shepherded. Children are not inconveniences to be avoided or even worse, aborted. Each child is a sacred life from conception, a gift God grants and God owns our children, like he owns us. And so our role is to steward them, to, to shepherd them on, on his behalf in, in some ways, to, to represent God in their lives as they're being trained up in some ways, ultimately pointing them to him in Christ. That's a beautiful truth. We have responsibility before God in that, but we don't have the total responsibility because we can't control the outcome anyway. And we'll talk more about that later, but that's a great truth to be able to rest in the Lord in that. And these truths also have greatly helped to raise the treatment of children. Where the word of God has held sway has helped the treatment of women. It's also helped the treatment of children. James Montgomery Boyce points out in his commentary on Ephesians 6 that at the time Paul wrote this, 
in Roman society, the, the, the Roman father had absolute power over his children to the point of death penalty with no consequences. And there were surely some good and kind fathers, but there were some who were not. One, one example he quotes is a, a husband writing his wife. They, they were at, in different cities at, for a time, and he writes, If, good luck to you, you have a child. If it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, throw it out. That was not uncommon. Infanticide was not uncommon in Roman society. What happened to those children? Sometimes they were just thrown outside and left to die, but often they were picked up, but often for not good, good reasons. And they would be raised to be slaves or worse, sex slaves in, in today's terminology. And sadly, there is today's terminology. Sadly, those, that kind of situation and treatment of children seems to be on the rise as society departs from God's design. Pray God will protect those children and deliver those children and do what we can on their behalf, including uphold God's design and the beauty and the value and the blessing of children. So God designed the family with the creation of mankind to include a man and a woman faithfully married for life with complementary roles, training up their biological and or adopted children as fellow image bearers and with the goal of Christ-likeness to his glory. Wayne Grudem points out in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, <clears throat> as it says that God made mankind, made man, male and female, in his image and his likeness. That those two words translated image and likeness are, are kind of overlapping synonyms, but one of them also has the idea of representing someone or something else. And so Adam and Eve and all their descendants by extension were created to be like God and to represent God. And that includes every husband, every wife, every son, every daughter. That's significant. What, and there are implications of that image of God in each of us. One is just the pure sanctity of human life. Every life is sacred. Every life has dignity. We're, we're not random chance mutations, just we've happened to become the highest level animal. That's not the biblical view. We're specially created by God in his image. None of the other, anim none of the other none of the animals are created in the image of God. Mankind is created in the image of God. We're unique. We are above animal kind. There's a different sanctity of life for human beings and dignity of life than the rest of creation. Under, under God. And so every human being, including our spouse and each of our children, belongs to God. And so we're to represent God to our children. We're, we're to point them to him uh, and treat them with this dignity. Jesus, being sinless, was in his humanity the perfect likeness and representation of God and representative of God. And so he's our model. And so part of, of what's happening in the family is one of our goals, both as husband and wife, to be mutually sanctifying, and as parents with our children, is Christ-likeness. Now, we can't make them repent and believe. As we said earlier, that's, that's 
That's God's responsibility, but, but it is the goal. We want to be instruments in his hands evangelistically, and if he brings them to salvation, discipleship-wise, sanctifyingly in their, in their lives. That, that's the goal we pray for and seek. And we should treat each of our children with, with dignity, and of course one another, spouses with dignity. You know, one of the dangers our society today has so swung away from discipline of children that we got to watch the danger of swinging so far back that we just think the old-fashioned way is right. Well, there are certain aspects, yes, but there are some aspects that weren't biblical. The old-fashioned often involved a harshness, a shunning, a scolding that really isn't biblical. Now, it, was, it went with things that are biblical that we do need to bring back and be faithful to of address misbehavior and punish that misbehavior in a way that will, will seek to train them out of it and restrain sin and use the rod. And, um, but it's in a context of love and self-control ourselves and not out of selfishness and pointing them to Christ in it. Uh, this dignity, I think, also includes listen to our children. Now, with discernment, in, especially in, disciple, in discipline situations where they might want to manipulate or be untruthful to us, have some trust but verify uh, approach to those situations, but also just in general, but still listen and in general listen to our, to our children. The old Victorian adage, children should be seen and not heard, there are definitely situations where that's true, but not every situation. They're fellow human beings that we're training up and we want to we develop those communications and, and conversations with, with them. Before we leave our, our first point to honor God's design for family, let's, let's look at the reality that we should do so in the face of our human depravity that fights against us. Our sinful depravity is implied here in Ephesians 6 in the, the call to obey parents, for fathers to not provoke to anger, the need for discipline and instruction. It's stated very clearly in an earlier context in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Ever since Adam sinned in Genesis 3, we all begin our existence as sinners. From the moment of conception forward, we're sinners and we sin ourselves. And as, as a result, we're spiritually dead in that sin. We're unable to relate rightly to God. We're separated by our sin from God. And our, our close relationship is not with him and his love, it's with his wrath against our sin. But once saved by his grace through faith in Christ, Lord willing, we're, we're forgiven. We're made right with him. We now do have a relationship with him. But even in that, until we go to glory, we're still fighting our sin. The, the, the reality of remaining sin in us is still a part of, of the equation here as we're seeking to follow him in his design for the family. And so believer, recognize this reality. 
in yourself and in your spouse and in your children. Don't be surprised by sin. Seek to be an influence away from sin. Seek to be an example of quick to forgive, an example of quick to repent and ask forgiveness. Um, Evangelize, Lord willing, and disciple. And then unbeliever. If you're hearing hearing me and you're an unbeliever, most likely you still see the sin of your spouse or your child towards you. Probably, and you should, see your own sin towards them at times and just in yourself. And I would urge you to, to ask God to show you that fully. That, that you are a sinner. You are depraved. It, it brings dire consequences on your family, on yourself, on others, and it offends God, your maker. And then run, beg, when you see that and you see you need the Savior, run to the Savior, run to Jesus Christ, repent, trust him, and know the joy of his salvation, the transformation he can work from, from within. So with this reality of sin and depravity in God's design, we, we must include training up our children in, in a way that helps them restrain sin. And especially, Lord willing, see they need Christ and, and point them to salvation in Christ. And those two go together. The, the, the discipline to restrain sin helps them see their sin so they can see they need the Savior. It's in God's sovereignty, but it's God can use that, and, and we pray he will. And also remember there, as I mentioned earlier, there are exceptions to God's design because of the fall, because of our own sin. That We live in a fallen world that creates all kinds of, of messing up the design. Others' sin messes up the design for us, and then our own sin messes it up. In, in, in Psalm 68, verse 5, God says he's father to the fatherless and the defender of widows. What a beautiful promise to some caught in some of the the fallen world's mess up of the design. He's there. He's faithful. And he he is in in other situations as well. But through, even with the exceptions, the answer to exceptions is not, well, let's make them all normal. Let's make them all as if they are the design. No, it's all the more we should uphold the design. And the reality is, everyone, there has been no perfect father, mother, husband, wife. There's been one perfect child, Jesus Christ. And that's the only one. And so we're, we're all sinners, and so all of us, to some extent or another, live in the exceptions, live in the departures from God's beautiful, perfect design. And our experience of those, if we're a believer, our experience of those should all the more motivate us to uphold the perfect design. Because it helps us see on the, on the negative side how beautiful that is, how much that should be the way it should be. And uh, for, for me, many of you know, my father died when I was very young. So I went from, structurally, from the, the design to not the design. Later, my mom remarried, had a stepfather situation, and then they later divorced. 
I went into the divorce structural different from the design. If we were to go around the room, there's so many countless variations, not just structurally, but then within our homes of, of where we fall short or things aren't exactly the way they should be. And our reaction should be, and I thank God this was the reaction of, of my mom and my church to uphold that design. And, and through that, I was blessed with this incredible legacy of my, of my father who had died. I was blessed with a stepdad in my life that's still in my life. We still stay in touch. And, and God blesses even through all these variations. He'll, he'll bless in other ways. And then God blessed me with this incredible wife way above me. That, that, and all of you know that because you know, that you know her. And blesses us with children. And there's so many imperfections in our home. And yet there's so many blessings. God brings so many blessings through where in his grace we hit his design. And our heart and desire should be hit it more and more by his grace. And trust him through the obstacles and challenges. Number two, observe by grace God's design for the family. So we honor it, we recognize it, it's true, it's wonderful. Let's live it. Let's seek by the grace of God to, to live according to it. Ephesians 4 through 6 are a call to believers to walk worthy of our calling in Christ. And as, as it develops, we come to chapter 5. We mentioned imitate God and his fathering and love, and, and we each love accordingly. And we get to chapter 5, verse 22, and it speaks of marriage. And then chapter 6, as we've just read, of parenting, of the family, specifically how do we, how do we live out our Christian faith here? Observe it, this design God has. And it starts with husbands and wives. Love and respect. It's a picture of Christ in the church and practically at the end of that passage, husbands, love your wives sacrificially like Christ loved the bride. Wives, respect your husbands. Like the church should respect Christ. And create that, that priority relationship which we mentioned earlier and that atmosphere in which to, to train up children. And then chapter 6 we find children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's right. Children, the word translated children there is of any age. So this, this reality is there to obey when still young, being raised in the home, and to honor, verses 2 and 3, all through life as, as children to, to our parents. And Paul here, and just calling it right, is is appealing to what we sometimes call natural law, that where God has put in mankind, in our conscience, certain understanding of what is true and false and right and wrong. And, and you can look historically and around the world, and there has been a basic understanding children should obey their parents. Now, can sin start suppressing that truth and twisting things and run the other way? Absolutely. In fact, in Romans 1, when it's describing a society that is going against God and God says, okay, I'm just going to turn you over to this and turn you over. And when it gets to the end of that passage, describing it in the list of descriptions is disobedient to parents. But that just proves the point. And now it's part of Revelation because Paul states it here in chapter 6, verse 1. He goes on to another reason. 
And he appeals to a revelation by quoting from the Old Testament. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. And what does he mean by the first commandment with a promise? Just a little side note, because I know some of you think through these things and start wondering. If you go back to Exodus 20, the second commandment has a promise. So why does it say this is the first? And there's two possible explanations. One is it could be first in the sense of priority, of foremost, not necessarily of of chronological order. Or I think the better explanation is in verse 2, the the promise that God will visit iniquity on the third and fourth generation and then his loving kindness to thousands of those uh, that, that's, that's relating to God, generally to God and his character and, and what he will do, not specifically to the second commandment, whereas this is the first that's specifically connected to the commandment itself. Um, it's probably why it says the first with a promise. And then the promise is, is shifted slightly because it's no longer the consequence of just the, the Old Testament nation of Israel to long life on the earth Now, there are disobedient children who live to be old, and there are generally obedient children who die young. But it doesn't negate the promise, because no child is perfectly obedient, for for one, where we could claim, I perfectly obeyed my parents, so you owe me long life. And there is generally truth to the fact that the the more we are obedient to our parents in God's grace, the longer we'll live than we would have if we weren't, and vice versa. Children are to obey, but children can't. In themselves, they're sinners, just like us. So they need the grace of God ultimately, and they need parents to train them and help restrain sin in their lives temporarily as well. And sometimes it can be difficult. This command to obey and to honor No parent's perfect, and so there will be some things in us as parents that will make it challenging for our children to obey and honor. And in some cases, it can be worse than others. And what do you do do in that case? And as I was reading James Montgomery Boyce, he had a really great suggestion. So this is a suggestion. It's a possible way to apply honoring our parents He says, if you're having difficulty, I suggest that you study your parents and pick out those areas in which you can properly honor them and then focus on those things. I thought that was great. What a great application and and way to pursue that. And he speaks of his own father, a lot of good things in his father, but, but he struggled a little bit with his dad, worked long hours as a physician, wasn't home much, and then when he was, he was not good at personal communication and so as he struggled, he, God had brought him to faith, James, James Montgomery, uh, boys, to faith, and he wanted to, he wanted to honor his father. And he, he came to this point of thinking, I'm going to examine my dad's life and find areas that I can particularly honor and admire. And he did that. And, and for instance, he found he's extremely hardworking and conscientious. Indeed, that was why he was away from home so much. So although his being away created problems, there were advantages also. The fact that he could pay for an extended and thorough education for me was one of them. Second, I discovered that he was extremely generous. He never flaunted his giving to Christian and other charitable causes. But when I found out about it, it helped me with some of the resentments to dissipate. 
He, fa- he found things to admire, found things to honor, rather than focus on things he struggled to honor. And we can do that with our wives and our husbands as well, right? With, with different relationships. The passage here in Ephesians 6 goes on to call parents to take responsibility for your children. Fathers, it says in Ephesians 6, verse 4, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers. Now, fathers, as, as fathers are the head of the home, that term was used and can be used to include mothers as well, and I think that's the case here. But, but it, at the same time, emphasizes the leadership of the father. And I, and I particularly believe I can defend that in, in, the, in the context because in verse 1, he uses the term for parents. And then in verse 2, he quotes from the Old Testament, fathers and mothers. So he went from naming both, a term that includes both automatically, to the term for fathers specifically, that then, because he's the head, can include the mother as well. And I think that's to emphasize men Dads take leadership in parenting, take in the sense of servant responsibility, which is what, the, what is being talked about in chapter 5. And that, and that rolls into the, the role of the parents with the children. Because one of the ways as men we can tend to sin is to abdicate leadership, to, to go passive and let our wives step in and do, do it all with our children and she's naturally, as the nurturer in the home in God's design, is going to do much of that. But we should, we should also be very conscious to lead out, to be, have a responsibility to be very involved, to lead, to take responsibility in the lives of, of our children and in the raising of our children and the training of our children. Um, and I, I would even recommend specifically things like if you're both present and there's a need for discipline in the spanking, you be the one to do that. Not that you both can't, not, not to be legalistic in it, but I think it's a way to apply uh, this, this kind of call to responsible servanthood and leadership of the, of the father. And note that parents are to be faithful in their parenting. We'll make mistakes We'll need to ask forgiveness, but but to pursue faithfulness. And we need grace for that. Jim Neuheiser, he was here a couple, about two years ago, I think. We're about to the time it would have been two years ago. And he had a little book that I think we even passed out. I reread it this week, and it's excellent. I highly recommend it. Um, And the title is Parenting is More Than a Formula. And you'll find it very good warnings in it but very encouraging. Um, and, and, and he just helps us understand, don't get caught up in, in a legalistic approach to parenting. Rest in the grace of God as you pursue the things he tells us to do. And he does tell us here in, in chapter 6, a don't, don't provoke your children to anger. What would provoke them? I think partly just not training them up, not disciplining them, uh, uh, training them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In uh, Proverbs 13, 24, it says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. I think that indicates that if we, if we fail to, 
to, to discipline, that provokes to our children to anger. They, they need that in their lives. And not in a way that's about our selfishness or out of control or out of anger, but self-controlled, out of love for them, for the purpose of serving our, our Lord together in the stewardship of them. It's, it's needed and it's right. And in that balanced context works beautifully. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, spare the rod and spoil the child. That is true. But beside the rod, keep an apple to give him when he's done well. And then verse 4 goes on to what we should do. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline is the, the guiding, directing, correcting, imparting to them a, a Christ-centered life. Now we can't control the outcome that they come to faith but we can keep pointing them. And, that, and that's the idea of, of that word there and the instruction from God's word, telling them, teaching them, training them, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, this is what's true, this is what's false. From God, through his word. As mentioned earlier, Jim Neusheiser cautions us to not get caught in, in some specific formula for parenting where we think it guarantees results. And there are some out there that claim to guarantee results. And that's, that cannot be true, and it's dangerous. Um, it's, it's spiritually dangerous because it becomes moralism, legalism, that can, can harm parents and, and children. Parents can, can either be crushed with false feelings of failure and that kind of a, a, of a system, or puffed up with self-righteous pride and false feelings of success in that kind of, of system. And children could, could become prideful Pharisees, whitewashed on the outside but still unsaved and, and full of sin on the inside. Or outright in your face, wild rebellious um, in their sin. And so beware of, of legalism. Instead, we need humble dependence on Christ, his word, and the Holy Spirit to seek by his grace to fulfill our our parental duties. We, we do have some. We do have some responsibility, but that's only one piece of the training up of our children. And we all fail in that, but God's gracious. God forgives. And don't over-exaggerate the failures, and don't take on the failures of that's everything. That I, if, if my child's not in the faith yet, or, or something's gone wrong in my child's life, it's my fault. Don't take that on yourself. The Bible doesn't put that on you. Be responsible to God, pray dependent, trusting him, repent when you need to, ask forgiveness, but receive the forgiveness that is what we each need to do. And that's only one piece. Then there's the piece of our children are responsible for themselves. They're responsible before God of what they do, including that they are responsible to repent of their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't make them. They're responsible for that. We can point them. We can pray to that end. We can ask God to make us an instrument in their lives with the gospel. And then pray that God sovereignly saves them in his grace. Because just like us, they will not repent and believe until God grants new life and draws them to himself. So beg God for that. Trust God with that. Trust God with the timing of that. Trust God if he chooses for some reason not to in, in one of our children's lives. Or God's ultimately sovereign. We can trust God. But he loves to work through families. He loves to make sure the gospel's clear through families. And he loves to save 
in the process. And so seek him for it. And, don't, and, and on that point of God's sovereign grace, don't let your children excuse themselves because of that. If they're, if they're here, if they're in a church like ours that teaches the sovereign grace of God, which the Bible teaches, there can be a danger of, of well, then I have an excuse. God, just comes, God, you got to come save me. It's not my fault. You haven't granted me new life. No. What the Bible teaches is it is your fault. It's my fault. If, if we refuse to repent and believe, it's our fault. If our child refuses to repent and believe, it's our child's fault. And make sure our children understand that. They need mercy. They need grace. And for them to beg for that. Because when they do, he does. It, it, it works together. There's not someone out there crying out to God in repentance and faith in him saying, no, I didn't choose you in sovereign grace. No. That's when they realize I give him the glory because the reason I'm now repenting and crying out to him is because he's granted me life. And then follow biblical principles in this dependence on the Lord. Beware of taking biblical principles and then trying to apply them and then taking the applications and creating that legalistic system. But do pursue it. Do pursue it in the grace of God and Christ. Things like developing a Christ-centered home instead of a, a child-centered home like uh, is that has become more of the norm in our, in our society. Create a gospel climate of, of unconditional love, of, of grace, of, of yes. God loves to say yes to us. God gave Adam and Eve a garden full of yeses and a no. We, we should have a lot of yeses, but we should also have some no's. That's, that's, that's part of... It's part of parenting and asking God to guide us in that. And the, and the no's are to protect the yeses. You know, our, our society, speaking of the, our society's rejection of God's plan, is part of that rejection was back, you know, we're dealing now with the LBGTQ+, but that's an extension of just sexual promiscuity. Well, God's no to sexual promiscuity is to protect the beautiful yes of intimacy and marriage. That's, that's how it works, and we should mimic that by the grace of God. Forgive and ask forgiveness. That's such an important piece because we all do fail. There are times we ask our children to forgive us, and we maintain forgiveness towards our children constantly. That's not going to always be easy, but ask God to help. Even if they're not asking forgiveness yet, it's there. You're offering it. You're, you're exampling the gospel and, and Christ. And shepherd the heart of our children towards Christ. Ted Tripp in his book of this title gives great suggestions. I, I recommend that as well. And he too would not recommend make it a legalistic formula. But, but things like study your children's strengths and weaknesses. Know what to pray about. Have objectives in light of those, of those things and from God's word. Communicate and use the rod together. Um, Ideas for communicating. Dinner around the table some nights of the week. Read, read the Bible and pray and talk at bedtime. Um, just seize times that, that arise. I don't know about you, but through the years when I hear teachings on everyday family altar and all these details of the family altar, I would feel so guilty. And I don't want to give you the impression that I did that. We didn't do that. 
But in God's grace, there were many times we did read the Bible and we did pray together and, and scriptures would come up in conversation. And we would pray about that and we'd pursue trying to do some of those things. And God's gracious and, and, and try to create uh, in his grace times to talk, communicate, and then use the rod. There are times disobedience happens and it should be disciplined. And God gave us spanking and the world hates it and the world says it's wrong and the world says it's harmful. No, it's not. God says if we love our child, we'll discipline them with a rod. And, and so we should trust God. Now do it God's way, calmly, not selfishly, not in anger. Explain what we're doing. Uh, where it's, it stings, it's just sting, but it doesn't harm the child, it's not abusive. It's God gives us beautiful design, and that's part of that design. And in the process, talk about what's going on and, and ask questions to get to their heart and what, what were they seeking and, and start, to, start to learn to examine. There are idols in their heart, just like there's idols in our heart, and we can share with them, we struggle with these things too, and we need Jesus in our lives as your mom and dad as well. Magnify. Thirdly, magnify God's design for the family. Just quickly, the point here is, is be an example by God's grace of pursuing the design. We can't be perfect examples, but we can pursue it. And, and one thing that will be included in that is when we speak of our spouse, speak well. When we speak of our children, speak well. And then speak truth. Part of this magnifying God's design is to speak truth of God's design for the family to our society and stand firm in it. Graciously so, speak the truth in love. But this is a great witnessing opportunity. As, the, as our world departs from God's design and we hold to God's design graciously, lovingly, what a witness I mean, God made marriage to be a picture of Christ in the church. It's a gospel picture. And so as we seek to, to live that out, it'll be a witness to those around us. And there are countless individual lies the world is sharing that we can counter with the truth. And then fourthly, enjoy God's design for the family. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your wife. Enjoy your husband. Enjoy your son. Enjoy your daughter. Enjoy your parents. Enjoy your brother or sister. And sometimes it might be hard. In fact, sometimes it is hard. But find something to enjoy. In worst case scenarios, enjoy Jesus. If you're a believer, Jesus is with you even in the worst cases. So that's all you can do to start with. Enjoy Jesus in the context of your family and beg him to build it from there and be searching. What, what's something I can enjoy about this other family member? And build on it and build on it by God's grace. But most of you have a lot you can enjoy. Focus on that. Enjoy it. Enjoy one another. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, I, I, forgive me, I can't remember who I read this week that made this connection. What a great connection. 
where Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh and God told him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's true when we hit obstacles and challenges and difficulties in our family as well. So trust him, be encouraged and joy. And so honor, observe by grace, magnify and enjoy God's design for the family to his glory. God's design is glorious. It's beautiful. It's good. It's right. It's the way it should be. Honor it. Observe it by grace. And if, if your heart has turned from your wife or from your husband or from your child or from your parents, repent. Please, I beg you, repent and turn back by the grace of God and pursue your wife, pursue your husband, pursue your child, pursue a right relationships. God, don't buy into the lies of the world that God doesn't know what he's talking about and that, and that anything goes and this other way is going to be better and the grass is green over there. It's all a lie and it leads to destruction. Stick with God's beautiful, glorious design. Do we come up short? Yes. But be encouraged. He's faithful. He'll help us. He'll be with us. He'll guide us. Do you feel like a failure? Turn that, cast your cares upon Jesus, your anxieties, because he cares for you. He's sufficient. He's faithful. It's not all on you. Be encouraged and enjoy family. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you so much for the unbelievable blessing of family, of marriage and children and family that you give mankind. God, forgive us how in our sin we mess it up so badly. But Lord, thank you. You're faithful even in that. You can redeem and you can restore. And Lord, we beg that for us, for us, your people, for us as believers in our marriages and our homes. Lord, encourage, restore, renew, refresh, and let it be a great witness to others around us and, and call them, call them to your design in the family and most of all to Jesus and to salvation and to the joy that can be found in you alone. And Father, we, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.